Welcome. I'm Dr. Judith Crossett. I run the program in geriatric psychiatry, both clinical care and training for medical learners of all levels and persuasions here at the University of Iowa. And I'm happy to talk to you today about depression and anxiety in older adults. Uh, that still, to some extent, means older than I am. But we, we tend to use 65 as the cutoff, not for physiological reasons, but because it's what we've always used and it's convenient. So first we have to do this disclosure slide. I, uh, my salary is paid entirely by the taxpayers of Iowa. I have no money of any kind from any commercial interests. So this is what we're going to talk about. Uh, some refresher on recognizing depression and anxiety, looking at some of the medication treatments, a little bit on uh, psychotherapy treatments for depression and anxiety, and then I want to talk at the end a, a little bit about a totally different way of thinking about how we approach these illnesses. But here are the real objectives. When I joined the faculty about 10 years ago, I told a, a dear old friend who's now an emeritus professor in an entirely different clinical field from mine, and I told him that I, my goal teaching here at the university was that medical students here would know as much about geriatric psychiatry as I knew about his field. That is, first, that the field exists with real illnesses in it. Second, that those illnesses are are serious. They have serious consequences in people's lives. And third, some red flags. So I would know when I needed, when I might be looking at one and needed to call somebody who was an expert in that field. Uh, he thought it was pretty funny, and he was quite right, that that's about all I know about his field. But if you know, if we can get everyone to know this much about geriatric psychiatry, about depression, anxiety, and other illnesses in the geriatric population, we will have... Uh, improve the health of our senior citizens immensely. And then I'm adding to the objectives of knowing that these things exist and that they're serious, knowing something about recognizing them, a little bit about how to treat them. So first, these are real illnesses because depression and anxiety are not part of normal growing old. Um, it's uh, your, your hair may get gray, your brain does not get depressed or anxious as a normal thing. So depression and anxiety are not the, the gray hair of the brain, I guess we could say. There is a concept known as successful aging that is a very real thing and has been studied considerably in a hope of finding how we, more of us can age successfully. As uh, George Viant and his colleagues did a very long-term study uh, 60 years of follow-up on young men, a group of Harvard students. These are all men, but this started a long time ago. And uh, a greater number of uh, schoolboys in inner cities. Now, they were not delinquents, uh, but they were otherwise without the advantages, one presumes, of the Harvard sophomores. These men were followed uh, not every year, but followed carefully for 60 years until they were great-great-grandfathers. They looked at what, uh, what qualities in the many, many things they looked at at these young men throughout uh, seemed to correlate with having a happy old age and what with early death or with being both sad and sick. So the uh, major categories of things they looked at were physical health, the doctor's assessment of the physical health of these men, their subjective physical health, how they felt about their own health, how long they lived without disability or impairment that stopped them from leading, doing things they wanted to do, their mental health as measured by some objective measures, not their opinion of it, their subjective life satisfaction. How, how satisfied were they with their lives? And finally, how much social support did they have? Uh, objective measures such as duration of a stable marriage and uh, subjective measures, how many friends did they think they have? So they 
they divided these guys ultimately into four groups, those who were both happy and physically well. The bottom, well, the very bottom group, those who died before the study ended. Uh, in the middle, those who were both not happy and not physically well, but the worst off of the group. And then a group in the middle who were either happy or well, but not both. And in both groups, whether they were all the advantages when they started or inner city boys, about the same percentage in, in old age are both happy and relatively physically healthy. Uh, quite a lot died. Of course, this is uh, 60 years. Well, these are 80-year-olds by now. And a good many died in the World War. But of, of interest, I think, those, barring uh, significant physical illness, those who retained reasonable physical health, their impairment in life, their, their disabilities came not out of having dementia, not out of their brains going, but from physiological things that, like gray hair, there's less we can do about. Reduced vision, reduced hearing, decreased lung capacity and oxygen use. So there is such a thing as successful aging. But if you don't age successfully, depression is one of the major correlates of that. Oh, let me go. Let me go back a second. There we go. The things that correlate particularly with staying in this happy and well group. Some of them are things we have control over, and we can help our patients have control over. For instance, less smoking, and you're more apt to be in the happy and well group. Less alcohol abuse. More exercise having a stable marriage, having mature defense systems. Uh, you remember the defense mechanisms, the uh, things like projection, uh, blaming your own, thinking your own problems are really attributable to someone else, versus the mature defense mechanisms, uh, uh, taking altruistic and, uh, views of things, for instance. Uh, lower BMI makes you a little more likely to stay in the happy, well group. Absence of depression. Now, they don't say whether treating depression, whether that's absent because you never got it or because you got it and it was well treated, but it certainly suggests that treating depression is worthwhile. Uh, all of these things influence your staying in that happy and well group in old age and are things we can help our patients do. So in the community, Depression by the Epidemiologic Catchment Area Study. These are old studies, but they were very well done. In the community, geriatric patients, they found a 3 to 5% uh, prevalence of major depressive disorder. If you start looking in the offices of virtually any primary care physician, it goes up to 24%. In nursing homes, uh, and to some extent in hospitals, but particularly in nursing homes where there's been a great deal of study of this, it may go up to 50%, and certainly it's more than the 24-25% in an outpatient population. But major depression isn't the whole story. There's also something called minor depression, and we'll get to the definitions of these in a minute. Some estimates say 10%, some say more. Subsyndromal depression is something that's not quite as many depressive symptoms as minor depression, uh, and that may be over 35% of the population. And then dysthymia, which I just want to mention briefly, though we're not going to talk about, that's chronic low levels of depression that are very hard to really beat down. So let's look at, at how we define some of these things. Officially, if you want to make a diagnosis of major depressive disorder, single episode or recurrent, for at least two weeks, the patient has to have depressed mood or anhedonia, loss of pleasure in normally pleasurable things, most of the time. And then after having one of those big two, any four of weight and appetite change, loss of both is, is classic. Psychomotor agitation, or retardation, the person who doesn't move except maybe to get another piece of Kleenex because they're crying. Loss of energy, fatigue, more than you can explain by physical health. Uh, 
sense of worthlessness or guilt that's out of all proportion to whatever may actually have happened or been done, decreased ability to concentrate, and the last is suicidal ideation plan or attempt, thinking about suicide. So that's the way we officially make the diagnosis of depression. I strongly suspect that a great many physicians in their offices uh, don't really sit there with an official checklist and check all of these off officially each time. But that's what we mean when we say major depression, that there are a lot of symptoms that are not normal for that person. Now, minor depression uses the same criteria you just saw. Uh, it still says that either the depressed mood or the loss of pleasure have to be present. But instead of four more of that list, you only need two. Once you get to four, you are in major depression, so that's that. So minor depression didn't quite meet the cutoff for major depression, but there were uh, real symptoms that were significantly impairing someone's life. And so this is in the very back of our friend DSM-5 as something to consider. Maybe, I don't know, excuse me, DSM-4-TR. Whether it'll make it officially into DSM-5, I don't know yet. But maybe this minor depression is significant. And here we are. Uh, minor depression may, in fact, be a real problem. This is a big longitudinal study. They looked at people with major depression, uh, and whether there was an increased risk of death at the end of the four-year study period. So the odds ratio for both men and women, if they had major depression, 2.32, increased risk of death, two, almost two and a half times more likely to die if they had major depression. And this is all causes mortality. Men, twice as likely to die if they had minor depression. Women with major depression alone, uh, a very high odds ratio here. And suicide uh, as a cause of death, more likely, in, most likely in major depression, followed by alcoholism, followed by minor depression. There's been increasing attention to these concepts of minor depression and subsyndromal depression in the last few years because we see so many patients that if we're being rigorous about the full number of criteria back for major depression, we just can't come up to enough criteria. And But somehow the patient who's taken the trouble to come into a physician's office and say, I just don't feel right. I don't know what's wrong. I just, nothing's fun anymore. I don't feel right. And to send that person away saying, I'm sorry, you only have three of the four symptoms besides your depressed mood, can't help you. Uh, that's, that's not what we're in medicine for. So subsyndromal depression, which is a lower level than minor depression, uh, beginning to be studied. And this uh, primary study, this was just published uh, this month, in fact. They looked at people with three different ways of categorizing whether they had subsyndromal depression. The first is that on the Hamilton depression scale, they scored at least 10. And 10 is the usual cutoff for if you're lower than 10, you don't have depression. 10 or more, you do. So running the Hamilton depression, are they, do they fall into the depressed category? The second, that was subsyndromal depression A. B was any two symptoms, and that's back of, whoops, there back of that list of uh, symptoms for major depression, any two of them over a threshold level. And then C, having any two symptoms, uh, not necessarily up to a threshold level, but one of the two had to be the depression or the loss of pleasure. And then they follow these people. They Ultimately, three years of follow-up they're going to have. But what they've published, as you can see, it's just this month, is the results from uh, the first year. Now, first of all, in their sample, they had, these are primary care patients, not psychiatry patients. 745 people they found uh, from primary care practices. 
major depression in five and a half percent, minor depression by those criteria I showed you in almost seven percent, and then combining uh, all three subsyndromal patterns, 37 percent with some level of something we might call depression, and just under half with no depression at all. That's an extremely prevalent thing. So the outcomes, those with any of the subsyndromal depression uh, criteria had poorer outcomes than the people who weren't depressed. And for the most part, with some variation in detail, but for the most part, you couldn't tell the outcomes of the subsyndromal depression from those of major depression or minor depression. Uh, now, the people with major depression did worse. The people with minor depression did almost as badly. People with subsyndromal depression did only slightly less badly, and sometimes the differences among those were not really significant. The primary uh, outcomes that were, you know, not bad outcomes, the people with any of these forms of depression had more psychiatric symptoms at the end of the year. They had more functional limitations, physically functional limitations, and more medical burden in general. These are outcomes that reduce your days well, reduce your days you can work, reduce your days uh, if you're a elder, frail elderly person that you don't need extra help from family or professional caregivers. These are, are outcomes that reduce your quality of life. So subsyndromal depression is important too. What we don't know yet is whether there's a difference if we treat it. But I think it's worth knowing that we should pay attention to it and perhaps we should treat it, not wait for the research. Now let me say also that how you make a diagnosis, any of these levels of depression, is if you see a symptom, do you count it as that's a real symptom or not? Do you say, well, this person has such terrible arthritis that they're in pain and stiff and so tired all the time that I can't count their lower energy as a depressive symptom because it's part of a general medical condition. That's one way to approach it. You get a very strict definition of major depression that way. You can count any symptom, no matter what it might, you know, if it's there and it's on that list, you count it. You can exclude the somatic symptoms, the physical symptoms like fatigue and weight loss and sleep, and substitute the cognitive symptoms or substitute other cognitive symptoms. Roger Kathol, who founded the medical psychiatry program here, had a set of criteria for depression in cancer patients where he put in cognitive symptoms to replace those physical ones. Um, and, you know, you could decide whether or not you wanted to count if you got a patient saying, oh, I'm fine, I have enough energy, I can read the whole paper, my you know, etc., versus the uh, adult daughter or someone else saying, oh, she, you know, how, whose report do you want to take on some of these symptoms? We should believe our patients, but our elderly patients' pride and drive to remain independent uh, may make them minimize symptoms, as you might want to think about whose, whose story you're going to listen to or how you're going to combine them. In treating geriatric patients with depression, they will respond to antidepressants but they don't do so as quickly as younger patients do. And younger patients don't always respond as quickly as you or they might like. And relapse is just more likely overall. Uh, age and poor physical health and any kind of disability are risk factors for less response, less good response. It gets harder to treat depression, not impossible and always worth trying but more difficult the older the person gets. Remission, in other words, freedom from depression symptoms, is more correlated with improved health. That's where all our friends in primary care, some of whom I hope will take the trouble to uh, listen to this briefly, uh, improved health, freedom from pain, seems to correlate 
with improvement in depressive symptoms. And active provision of social activity. Not saying, well, why don't you go out to the senior center uh, and go play bingo or whatever it may be, but having a system where the, the uh, assisted living facility or the senior home, as somebody goes around and knocks on doors and say, why don't you come on down and work on this jigsaw puzzle with us? Why don't you come on down and watch this movie? A um, bunch of us who used to have big gardens and specialize in roses are going to sit and have coffee and talk about our roses. Why don't you come join us? Active provision of, of social activity, not simply having it there and leaving it up to people with depression to get the initiative to go. Now, this is an old, old slide, obviously. You can tell that it's pretty fuzzy. I scanned it in from an old 35 millimeter, in fact. And the data don't go beyond 1992. But this is another point about the importance of depression in the elderly. Because as you can see, this is rates of suicide per 100,000 people. Black females, it goes to zero at age, by age 55, simply because we don't have the data. Black male, white females, excuse me, white females, next group, pretty consistent rate through the lifetime. Black males, again, after 85, we just don't have data. It's not that they stop. I'm sure it still exists. Peaks in young men kind of goes on. But look what happens to older white males starting at about age 65. The rate of suicide per 100,000 just goes up horrifyingly. This is why in this age group, the older age group, the suicide rate is so much higher than at any younger age because elderly men are at a great risk for suicide. And anything we can do to reduce it reduces suffering of a lot of people. Completed suicides. This is horrifying data, and it's old, but I haven't seen anything to say that it's different. And there, are, this is not the only study that would say this. So of people who are what are called successful suicides or completed suicides, three-quarters of them had seen their family doctor within a month of completing suicide. Forty percent had seen, and this, if you go to any healthcare provider, you know, the visiting nurse, the parish nurse, the uh, any healthcare provider at all, the numbers are, are even higher. Within a week, they had seen some healthcare provider and completed a suicide. And 20%, the same day that they saw someone, completed suicide. I have seen, I didn't clutter this slide with the data, but how many of these people were asked at the visit anything about mood? Or was there any documentation of suicidal or not? If someone's coming in for a blood pressure check, perhaps that's not an automatic question. But it certainly suggests that anyone with any history of depressive symptoms, any look of something's a little different, ought to be, how are you doing? Are you okay? You, you know, we, we, we need to ask. We need to ask. I want to touch very briefly on psychotic depression, which is not very common, thank goodness, because it's a, a very difficult thing to treat on an outpatient basis. And I would strongly suggest that if you ever have a patient with depression accompanied by delusions, hallucinations, usually delusions, we're going to be at the poor farm, we don't have any money, I don't have anything nice to wear, I have... I have cancer, I, I'm, I'm dead in extreme cases, and so you, there's no point in taking my blood pressure, I don't have one. So uh, 25 patients with psychosis, 101 without, but with, um, with depression. These are all with depression. So these are fairly old, fairly high Hamilton depression rating scores, over 16. Uh, of those who, 17 who got, of the psychotic ones, 17 got ECT and 15 got better. That's a very high percentage. Of the psychotic ones, that 25 
who only got medication, only half responded. Well, half is pretty good, but it's nothing like this. So referral to psychiatry in consideration for ECT, for psychotic depression. Of uh, those who were not psychotic, uh, a substantial number respond to medication, as you would expect. Psychotic depression also tends to be more recurrent than non-psychotic, though all depression is a recurring illness. It's not a one-shot deal. We talk a little bit about antidepressants because we do need to talk about how to treat it. First line essentially are the SSRIs. And mirtazapine, per, whoops, mirtazapine perhaps I ought to put a question mark by because although it has the great advantages of helping with sleep and appetite, both of which can be very helpful for our elderly depressed patients, it also may add to confusion. So unless I have someone who seriously needs the appetite and is simply not tolerating the GI side effects of the SSRIs, I, I don't use mirtazapine as much as I did, though I still like it pretty well. Uh, this, is, this is a consensus according to a consensus conference that was held a number of years ago with a little bit of my own thinking thrown in. So I still use nortriptyline, though I probably use it about third line because of the difficulties and the fact that so few people are familiar with uh, side effects and usage of it. And if you're not experienced, you probably shouldn't use it. But it's, it can be done safely and very effectively for elderly patients. It, too, will promote sleep and appetite more than the SSRIs. Wellbutrin I like pretty well and don't get too many side effects. Venlafaxine affects her. Uh, I have some concerns about blood pressure and constipation at higher doses, but, it's, but it, it can often be helpful. Prozac has the great advantage of being so very long-acting that if you have someone who is not always compliant with medications, you'll have somewhat smoother effect. Uh, other than that, I find it sometimes a little more activating than, than we need. Uh, Deloxetine, Cymbalta, is still very expensive. I am not personally, please don't sick all the drug reps on me, convinced that it is better for pain than any other antidepressant, but it certainly is an option. Our old friends, the, uh, the tricyclics, which are most anticholinergic, are simply no longer recommended. So I, I will admit I have a couple of elderly patients on, uh, I have one, on, one or two on amitriptyline. They've been on it for years. We've tried other things. They're doing better. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But I try to watch their EKGs and their other side effects fairly carefully. Meanwhile, they're happy and they're out of the hospital, so I'll leave what's working in place. Wouldn't start an elderly person on them. So um, hmm, I pretty much talked about these. These are the ones I actually probably use most. I like citalopram because it's less expensive than escitalopram. Uh, sertraline is not on usually on the $4 lists, but again, it's a relatively inexpensive and, and uh, straightforward SSRI. And then again, maybe on the mirtazapine and nortriptyline. Nortriptyline has the advantage also that you can get a good therapeutic blood level uh, and know if you're in a safe zone, if you are not at a high enough dose to be likely to be therapeutic. With nortriptyline and with anything else that comes in a liquid, uh, you can use the trick with people who tell you they're very sensitive to medications of starting one drop at a time. I know that's a homeopathic dose, but if you can get them to take one drop for a week or a few days and then two drops, you can build up to an effective dose uh, and have them think that you're I mean, they know that you're honoring their sensitivity to medicine and helping them get to the endpoint you want. So if your antidepressant trial doesn't work, the major errors made in primary care are that the trials aren't long enough or the doses weren't high enough. 
geriatric patients in general, I would use lower doses than I do in general adults, but that doesn't mean that we don't push the dose to an effective level. I I can't give you numbers because it varies so much with patients, but uh, get, you know, if you're not at least to the basic uh, one-size-fits-all adult dose, 20 milligrams for Prozac, 10 milligrams for Lexapro, you're not high enough. And with, particularly with the SSRIs with few side effects, don't be afraid to go a little higher, to go to 20 on Lexapro, for instance. And keep the patient taking it long enough. Encourage them that um, six weeks is uh, not too long to wait for robust response. And if you get any response at four to six weeks, you ought to wait longer to see if you don't get continued improvement in the next four weeks. Uh, did the patient actually take the medication? Uh, I have been fooled by a patient who, when we died, we found a whole suitcase full of antidepressant medication, and she assured me month after month she was doing better, and I never did figure it out till it was too late. Is something else going on? Is there alcohol use going on that is simply interfering with function, largely? Is there some kind of abuse or neglect or um, interpersonal, family, social situation going on, some stressor that means that until you fix that, nothing is going to go very well or help them get to where it can be fixed? So if your first trial didn't work, increase the dose as long as you're still in a range where you feel at all comfortable with that. Only when I've maxed out the antidepressant I'm on do I go to a different antidepressant. And I try to switch categories, but uh, you don't absolutely have to. You can go from one SSRI to another. These are the augments I most often use. Lithium very carefully in elderly, because lithium is not as well tolerated by elderly. It's a lower blood level before they start getting confusion. Uh, I personally don't take lithium to the same kind of therapeutic blood level it would take to treat a, a manic episode when I'm using it to augment for depression. Many people have very good luck with thyroid supplementation with or without presence of uh, hypothyroidism. Uh, and it, it's a well-established supplement. Personally, I don't use it. That doesn't mean it's not a good one. Quite often, using just a very little bit of antipsychotic, a little a dopaminergic kick, antidopaminergic kick, to an antidepressant will increase its efficacy. There are beginning to be data on that, but that's something that in private practice has been going on for a long time. So those are the three things I tend personally to use as, uh, as augments. The second thing you can do, or the, the, another thing you can do, is go to a second antidepressant. Use a combination. Uh, the pharmacists, uh, at least the clinical pharmacists, would rather we used only one medication in a therapeutic class, but sometimes that's what works to get someone adequate relief. Some of my long-term elderly patients no longer can tolerate, for instance, the dose of amitriptyline that's kept them well for a, a couple of decades. But if I take the amitriptyline away altogether, they don't do well on the SSRIs. They just don't get the same benefit. So we lower the amitriptyline as far as I can get away with and add a little bit of the SSRI, and we seem to stay in a pretty good place. So sometimes, and some people will use two antidepressants more, more readily than I do. I tend to keep things pretty simple. Our patients with depression going to do well um, in primary care or at all for that matter. So these are some prognosis outcome studies. Uh, 215 patients in primary care practices followed for four months. Uh, this is one of the places collaborative care, something we're going to talk about a little later more, uh, but collaborative care is something that works better than what a single primary care physician 
has the time and resources to do in an office. So limited physical and emotional function, lower remission rate. I don't want people to feel that you can't treat geriatric depression, but you need to know that it is not going to work like the textbook given the antidepressant two weeks later, they're beginning to get better, and in another couple of weeks, they're out playing golf again. It does, unfortunately, does not work that well. Here's another study, also by also George Alexopoulos. Uh, 599 patients. Here we've got major and minor depression. Two years of follow-up. Uh, again, with a collaborative uh, plan versus usual. See the physician, get your meds. Uh, what they're doing is they're with usual care. They're watching how many of the primary physicians pick up and treat the depression that they're uh, spotting um, some level of depression in their in the physician is blinded to the information that the researchers have. So with care managers, far more of the patients get treatment for depression. They get remission from symptoms earlier, and they continue to get better in a second year. This is true for major depression. For the people with minor depression, whether they had care managers or not, the, uh, didn't really change the outcome much in this study. And this, uh, I've just given you the title of this paper, because this is the, the bottom line, I think, on treating geriatric depression. You can get extremely good short-term response, whether you use antidepressants, whether you use ECT, whether you move them from a milieu that is not happy to a place uh, sometimes the inpatient geriatric psychiatry ward is uh, a much happier place for them than home. Um, but long-term maintenance of response is very difficult to do. You just have to keep at it. There is worry, I know, about misuse of antidepressants, that we use them too much, uh, that we're Prozac Nation or whatever, but in particularly in geriatric psychiatry, the misuse of antidepressants is when we fail to use them, when we don't recognize and try to treat the depression at all, when we don't choose an antidepressant to treat depression. Though I will say it's several decades since the answer to depression was give the little lady some Valium and tell her take, husband to take her out to dinner. We're doing better than that. Failure to use an appropriate dose and failure to do it long enough. Those are the misuses of antidepressants, not the using them in the first place. Dan Blazer, who is one of the leaders in epidemiologic studies, in, particularly in depression in the elderly, uh, reminds us that the, the outcomes, even if it is not a full remission of symptoms, the improvement in the level of symptoms and the severity of symptoms uh, we cannot know how valuable that is. None of our studies and numbers can tell us how much that improvement in quality of life means in this large and very vulnerable population. So now let me talk a little bit about anxiety disorder. These are the official criteria. Generalized anxiety disorder, and here the duration is six months. Oh goodness, I guess that gets us over the uh, worry about specific events that one hopes come and go faster than that. Excessive, excessive anxiety and worry for at least six months. But that anxiety and worry is difficult to control. You can't just sort of say, okay, that's tomorrow's problem. But I can't do anything about it today. Worry about it tomorrow. Focus on something else. Distract myself. Those two plus three or more of Restlessness, easy fatigue and tiredness, concentration or the sense of your mind going blank. I'm reminded with that one of a, an old Farside cartoon. Uh, it's a scene at a bar in the Old West, clearly. And here's this little guy um, sitting at the bar with his beer. I mean, he's obviously short, not muscular, um, can we say wimp in a polite sense? Um, and 
walking up to him with the bristly beard and the six guns and the oversized um, bully kind of look is this other guy. And the caption is, quick, what's the square root of, and there's a 16-digit number. Uh, the point being that anxiety means that your mind goes blank and you can't function as well as you normally would. So irritability is also can be an anxiety. Uh, you know, don't bother with me this, I'm too busy worrying. Muscle tension and sleep disturbance. That's officially how you make a generalized anxiety diagnosis. And generalized anxiety is thought to be the most prevalent in a geriatric population. I know there are lots of other forms of anxiety disorders, but this one is, is the one we're going to talk about. So what data I could find, I apologize I didn't go back to the epidemiologic catchment area data on anxiety for you, but uh, an attempt to study prospectively the treatment of anxiety in the community found about 7%. Uh, and in a medical population, so in other words, people in your waiting office waiting room, higher, and that it is very disabling, as disabling as depression. Okay. Uh, the usual treatments, according to Mr. Lenz, were Dr. Lenz, uh, SSRIs, benzodiazepines, and Welbutrin, with venlafaxine and duloxetine as second-line treatments, and then, of course, psychotherapy for anxiety. So he's going to be looking uh, particularly at SSRI. But there's not a lot of, of study of this sort of thing. Let me say something about benzodiazepines. And note, there's no citation. So what you're hearing is what Dr. Crossett thinks here. Uh, you can quote me. I will own up to what I said. But, uh, but this is not evidence-based medicine. This is authority-based medicine. And uh, that means it's about worth what they're paying me for it at the moment. Uh, so benzos do usually work to reduce anxiety. If they don't work, the patients who say, Dr. Grosset, I need more, I'm still anxious, and I'm at a dose I think is reasonable and safe, th then they're not working, and that's not the right answer to the anxiety. Uh, I try then to reduce them with mixed success. But for most people, um, benzodiazepines will reduce anxiety significantly. Yes, there are risks of falling, of confusion, of overuse of benzodiazepines, and I'm very strict with the patients that I have on chronic benzos. I try not to have too many of them, but they get the number they need for the month with the dose we've agreed on, and they don't get early refills, ever. My feeling is that long-term consistent use at a modest dose is probably not harmful. If that's the dose, uh, low, steady dose that we, we establish and don't change for years, and that keeps you functioning in the roles that you want to be functioning in, doing the things you want to do, then that's okay. Now, I tend to use lorazepam primarily. I have used oxazepam occasionally, though we, we just don't use it as much. It's not quite as short-acting as lorazepam. And then the versus clonazepam and alprazolam. I personally, and I know this is contrary to what's evidence-based and, and in the data, uh, but I will say that I don't, I personally rarely find clonazepam really clinically more long-acting than lorazepam. Maybe it is for some people. And if people are doing well on it, I won't change it. But I tend to use lorazepam more often. Alprazolam, and again, this is my clinical experience and feeling, is that it is short-acting, yes, but that my patients taking an alprazolam kind of drop off a cliff as it wears off, whereas the lorazepam is a slightly slower wearing off and a more comfortable and less apt to be seeking that next pill. Um, my clinical take on it, and um, if it doesn't seem to be true for you, you don't have to believe any of this. I will say that these two, lorazepam and oxazepam, have no active metabolites. They're metabolized differently.
from other benzodiazepines. And that can be an advantage in your elderly patients because you've got a more reliable chance to clear it out of the symptom system. There is a third benzodiazepine which shares that no active metabolite property. That's temazepam, restoril, but that's used for sleep, not for anxiety generally. So we can use benzos for anxiety, but it leaves a lot of us uncomfortable to make that first line for long-term anxiety. So Dr. Lenz did a trial of prospective trial with Lexapro for anxiety. It's a fairly rare kind of trial. 177 patients randomized either placebo or to the Lexapro, uh, fairly even numbers. Uh, and the people, well, excuse me, this is 69% improved significantly on the Lexapro, 51% on the placebo. So it favors the active treatment, not by a lot but it did work. And of course, for some of those people, it worked extremely well. For others, less well, but it worked. There is some evidence of this improvement, and the difference in improvement maintains over, over a couple of years or so. Patients who also had major depression or significant medical illness didn't respond as quickly. And uh, getting people to stay with the study until they responded was something of a problem. Um, the way the study was designed, you went a certain number of weeks at one dose, and then if you weren't getting response, they increased the dose to two placebo pills or to, in fact, 20 milligrams of Lexapro. And with that dose change, there was some fatigue and somnolence, uh, on, particularly on the, on the uh, escitalopram but no really serious adverse events. Now, there, there have been prospective studies much smaller than that one using citalopram and sertraline. And the pharmaceutical companies, I haven't, I haven't read these studies, but I understand there are retrospective pooled analyses of effects or the extended release form and of deloxetine. Uh, in all of these, including this, this rather nicely designed uh, Lexapro trial for, for anxiety, the effect size is very modest, but it's there, and the medication is well tolerated, and it's safe. I personally don't know why one uh, SSRI would work less well than another. So uh, if citalopram is what your patient can afford, it might be worth trying but you have to work to keep them on it. And to tell them this is not going to be a miracle, you're never anxious again. This is going to significantly reduce your symptoms so that you can live and do what you wish better. Now, let me move to psychotherapy. There is not very much research on psychotherapy for depression. Uh, since cognitive behavioral therapy was formulated and then uh, can be pretty well standardized so that we can make sure we're giving the same treatment to a group of people, much more so than with some of the older inside-oriented therapy. There are beginning to be uh, some studies. So a Cochrane review back in 2009 of psychotherapy for depression in the elderly uh, found a few trials of cognitive behavioral therapy against a wait list. In other words, you signed up and you met the screening criteria to need treat, you know, psychotherapy for depression, and you were either randomized to, uh, we have a therapist available for you, come get your therapy, or we are so glad you signed up for this, but unfortunately we don't have any space now, but you're on our wait list, and we'll let you know as soon as we have somebody. So that's one kind of control group. And the cognitive behavioral therapy is more effective than the wait list. They actually found three trials uh, with cognitive behavioral therapy versus unspecified psychodynamic therapies, and they didn't find very much difference. Those are not against waitlist. On the cognitive behavioral therapy trials, it was the Hamilton Depression Scale that showed more difference than the Geriatric Depression Scale. The Hamilton is a little more weighted to some of the somatic symptoms of depression 
the geriatric depression scale to functional and psychological symptoms. There simply were no trials, and I don't know of any since, uh, uh, putting psychodynamic treatment against any kind of control, a wait list or any kind of control. So we can't say anything about it. But there is some, though modest evidence perhaps, that cognitive behavioral therapy can work for depressed elderly patients. But a warning. Uh, Medicare, who are all about stamping out fraud, think it's a fraud if you bill for psychotherapy when you have dementia on the list of diagnoses. That doesn't mean that you can't do some psychotherapy with a patient with dementia. It does mean that you have to be very careful about documenting what kind of therapy you're doing documenting that the patient does have enough memory function to remember what you're talking about from the beginning to the end of the session, perhaps to go home and apply it a little bit. For all, not all dementia means total lack of capacity. So with very mild dementia, uh, there certainly is a feeling that some psychotherapy can be of benefit. But um, again, be careful how you are billing that you're demonstrating that you've got a patient who's capable of benefiting from psychotherapy. Uh, I trust that if you have the dementia, you're not billing much less uh, providing psychotherapy. So here's another uh, a newer study, newer than the Cochrane Review, taking primary care patients again with a mean age of about 74. And these went to treatment as usual, which was whatever the primary care physician felt was appropriate. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, plus seeing their primary care physician for whatever might happen there. And then what was called a talking control, plus the treatment as usual. A talking control meant they met with someone about once a week. That person gave no advice, did no problem solving with them, but they were supposed to display a lot of empathy and warmth and make the person feel welcome and paid attention to, but to discuss neutral topics. Now, I'm not quite sure how sports or current affairs become neutral topics. I might have chose, chosen gardening and how the pets are doing or something like that, but, you know, neutral topics. Um, so the primary physician in this study could use medication if, if it was felt to be appropriate by the physician, uh, referral to any kind of community support system, to a senior center, to something like that, but not to uh, formal therapy unless you needed to kind of break the whole system and say, this person really isn't doing well, we need to do more. Which probably didn't happen much. So, most of the patients, now this is of course a single blind system because the patients know what kind of therapy they're getting, um, they wanted the cognitive behavioral therapy. Most of them, however, in retrospect, because um, it's one of the things they measured at the end, said, yes, my therapist was easy to talk to and I liked the sessions pretty well. Interestingly, not much difference in the patients thinking that one or the other was useful to them. About the same percentages said cognitive behavioral therapy was useful as said talking, uh, the uh, other was useful. No significant differences in how much medication was prescribed uh, for the two groups. But on the, uh, on the rating scales of depressive symptoms, cognitive behavioral therapy was significantly better. This was true at four weeks, which was their primary measuring point. And this difference was maintained at 10 weeks. So that's uh, very good evidence that cognitive behavioral therapy, or anybody who sits down and pays attention, is going to be some good. But cognitive behavioral therapy, a real benefit. Not something you can provide directly in a primary care office, not by the physician, unless you have more time than most primary care physicians I know. But something you can promote being available for your patients. There actually have been trial a few trials of cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety. No Cochrane review I could find. Uh, 
Uh, this one had, again, primary care patients with a mean age a little younger, only 67, randomized to the cognitive therapy or to what was called enhanced usual care, which meant getting a phone call a couple of weeks and a little bit of support, uh, but not a face-to-face -face meeting. The patients who, uh, after their initial uh, soliciting patients, screening them for eligibility, patients deciding they didn't want to do this or whatever, the ones who ended up being included in the study were, compared to those who didn't make the cut, were younger, uh, a little more educated, more women, and uh, somewhat more severe anxiety symptoms. The uh, enhanced usual care had more dropout than the cognitive behavioral therapy. And again, because the patients really preferred getting the therapy and were somewhat dissatisfied with the enhanced usual care. So the measures they used, something called the Penn State Worry Questionnaire, which found that cognitive behavioral therapy did better than the enhanced care all the way through the end of the study. This was a 15-month. But the, uh, a, a severity scale for anxiety symptoms was not really significantly different. Kind of an interesting difference there, that uh, less worry, but, but not in some ways better outcome on the anxiety. Um, the things that got better with the cognitive behavioral therapy were severity of worry, depressive symptoms associated with anxiety, and general mental health. So perhaps not quite as successful as we might, might like for cognitive behavioral therapy, but still of some benefit. And notice that these are more educated patients, so our bias that it takes uh, more intelligence to benefit from psychotherapy um, may not mean that psychotherapy is going to work better. All the uh, psychotherapy studies do exclude people with uh, inadequate cognitive ability. A mini mental cutoff is often about 24. So here we are. Uh, I've given you what I hope is a pretty good PowerPoint. Insofar as we've got primary care people watching this, and I don't know who the audience is because I'm talking to a computer screen. Uh, there have been attempts by various people for a great many years by the Geriatric Psychiatry Association, um, by the American Psychiatric Association, uh, many attempts to improve, to uh, get primary care to do more and better treatment of depression in all their patients, but particularly in the elderly. Most care for depression is done in primary care. And I don't mean to say they don't do it well, but there still is a gap between all our education about the importance of treating depression and what actually happens. This is a slide um, copied, uh, not directly, but uh, reformat from the Geriatric uh, Mental Health Alliance that I, you saw the suicide slide for before. So if you go to primary care waiting rooms and you, you know, say 100 patients in uh, the primary care waiting room, if you do surveys, how many of these, you know, go talk to them or look at the data, someplace between 20 and 50% roughly of those people have some significant symptoms of depression, might well meet a diagnosis of depression. If you take those same patients and go to the doctor's charts, less than 10% will have depression on the diagnoses. So for all that we keep trying to tell the story, and this is old data, I would like to think that these are moving closer together. But we aren't there yet. So collaborative care. This is here we're talking systems a little bit. 
collaborative care maybe is the way to go in the future. What we've got so far is exciting. Uh, are all the kinks worked out? No. Uh, is it going to be free? Well, no, never. Collaborative care means that in a primary care office, maybe physically in it or, or closely allied with it, people are, who have uh, depressive symptoms, from full-blown depression to subsyndromal, wherever it's picked up, in addition to the usual care of their primary care physician, someone else, probably not a physician because there's not money enough to be a physician and there aren't enough physicians to do it, but someone else gives additional help to that person with depression. We do this when managing Coumadin. We do this, to some extent, I think, managing blood sugars. We can do it managing depression. Sometimes that collaborative person is simply, uh, you know, pulls the physician's sleeve, advises, you know, the, the practice guideline here would be, the evidence-based medicine would be, here's some people you, you're seeing this afternoon who've got real depression and think about. Sometimes it's a matter of phone calls to the patients so identified to encourage them to stay with treatment, to see how they're doing, to give a little extra support to that patient to relieve the physician of the need for visits as frequently. Sometimes it's face-to-face -face time in an office, and sometimes it's uh, psychosocial interventions, some active therapy or other treatment more than uh, just uh, a, a med check sort of a visit. So lots of possibilities for how collaborative care works. And there are, because, here we are, this is, is what so many of us say to our patients. We identify a problem, come see me in a few weeks. Well, if you try to book into my schedule in a few weeks, you're going to be uh, four to six weeks out with luck. Unless I make a special point of overbooking and finding a way to fit you in more which you sooner. But, here's another of our old, very old slides. In primary care, at least um, back in the 80s, early 90s, people given antidepressant in a primary care office, 41% are stopping the medicine in two weeks. 68% in four weeks. And after six months, 80% of them, more than 80%, still haven't really given the medication a flare trial. The physician who can't see you, except maybe once a month, can't really stop this from happening. Well, nobody ultimately can stop it from happening. But the collaborative care model, where someone else is having contact with the patient, particularly, and encouraging them to stay with it, can improve those rates. So there is a, a systematic review of studies. Um, they only found three trials, the rather more papers than that, based on those three trials, which met the full criteria of being randomized controlled trials, patients over 60, no dementia patients included, looking at outcomes of how depressed, how much suicidality, but a lot of patients about two-thirds in collaborative care, the other third in usual care. Interestingly, the collaborative care models included some with and some without the provider, the collaborator, uh, the mental health provider, talking to the primary physician. Kind of strange not to talk to the primary physician. Obviously, where they don't, that's not one where the role of the collaborator is to advise the physician. Collaborative care, significantly better response in depressive symptoms. 50, uh, better in how many patients get a 50% drop in their Hamilton depression scale. Better in how many get their Hamilton depression scale below 10, how many get to remission. Significantly better decrease in suicidal thinking. Collaborative care does better in the patients who have comorbid medical illness you remember from earlier that comorbid medical illness makes depression outcomes harder to get to, good ones, that is. Uh, whatever the 
precise models whether or not the mental health provider was talking to the primary provider didn't seem to make a lot of difference. And collaborative care, clearly it's a very safe thing. It's very highly valued by the patients and well accepted. What cost analyses are there are say, this is not really very expensive for the good it can do, for the increase in days well, the decrease in disability, uh, the decrease in need for extra services. Collaborative care is clearly the way to go. So if you're listening and you're in primary care, think about how you might be able to perhaps cooperate with other primary care docs in your area and, and get some collaborative care going. If you're in psychiatry, uh, think about how you can promote it and uh, work uh, as an auxiliary to your family doctors to help them take care of our patients better. Ultimately, old age ought to be like this. The machine is old, but we can keep that engine running and we can have quality uh, with minimized depression in old age. Thank you very much. If you have questions, I'll be uh, happy to answer them. Contact the Geriatric Education Center. They'll forward your questions to me, and I will give you the best answer I can. Thank you.